Thank you, Barbara. Barbara is a member of our youth group, and we praise God for the talents that God has given her and as she has served us this morning. And thank you for all of you who have uh, led us in a time of singing and praying and hearing God's word read. We continue to worship this morning through the proclamation of God's word. Do you know people who like to know the bottom line in everything they do? They like to know the point of everything before they do it. They always like to know the ultimate goal of what they do or why they should do this project or this task. You may know people like that or you may be one of those yourself. Well, this morning, we will be asking these kind of questions for the sermon series that we are about to finish uh, this morning, and really next week will be our final sermon. But I'd like for us to ask the question, what is the bottom line? Why are we interested in maturing believers? For the last few months, we have been on a journey as a church to understand the profile, the marks of Believers who are on a path of maturing. This morning we will be asking the question, so what? Why? Why should we be interested in that? But also I pray that this sermon series and today's message will help us provide a foundation uh, and a direction for us as a congregation. We are in a time of transition as a church and we're asking God to make clear to us what is the mandate? that he wants us to pursue clearly and faithfully. So this morning I pray that as we are finishing, as we're wrapping the sermon series, that we we would be asking these questions, these bottom line questions. What's the point? What's the ultimate goal? Now we began the series by looking at Paul's aim for his ministry, which we found in Colossians 1, 28 and 29 where Paul said, we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. And then Paul says, to this end I labor. This was his aim, to present everyone perfect in Christ. But what about us? Why should we have this aim? Personally? And why should we as a church have this aim corporately? Well, the passage that we're going to be looking at today will be answering our curiosity by saying one phrase. And it's this. Because God predestined us for maturity. Because God predestined us for maturity. I encourage you to open scripture to Romans chapter 8. We'll be reading from verse 28 to 30. It's a very short passage that we read this morning, but it's a very rich passage. I encourage you to open scripture to Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through verse 30. Listen to the word of the Lord that is being read in our ears, in our midst this morning. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined 
to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those who pre he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Amen. This was the word of the Lord for us, and let us pray that God would enlighten our minds to understand this word. Father, thank you for your plan from eternity past to create us, to redeem us, and to conform us to the likeness of your Son. This morning we ask for your Spirit to open our eyes, to grasp the beauty and the power of your plan for the lives of those who are in Christ Jesus. I pray that you give me clarity in de declaring this great news. Lord, I pray that you give us minds and hearts that we are open to receive it. In the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen. Well, the passage we just read this morning stands in one of the most important chapters of the entire Bible. So much so that Luther, the great reformer, said that all Christians ought to know this chapter by heart. Here's a challenge for our spiritual disciplines. Now, notice how this chapter begins. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Now, this is incredible news that Christians proclaim. The news appears to be delivered in the language of a courtroom where a lawsuit has been submitted against us, and not only against us, but against all humanity. Uh, this is clearly stated in Romans 5.18. You don't have to turn there, but let me just read Romans 5.18. Paul says, Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men. In other words, one trespass made all men to be under condemnation. That's the terrible news. But the news does not stop there. Paul continues and says, So also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Dear friends, this is the gospel. The gospel is first a terrible news that because one disobedience, everyone stands condemned and deserves death. And yet, because of one obedience of one man, everyone can be made righteous. So Paul continues this journey, and in chapters 6 and 7, they are like a parenthesis, because some might misunderstand this grace that God gives. So Paul clearly explains, just because grace is greater than our sin, just because the obedience of one man gives righteousness over the disobedience of one person who made all to be condemned, just because of that, it does not mean that we ought to go on sinning. Paul says, should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? 
And this Paul discusses in chapter 6 and 7. And then as if he goes back to his original thought in chapter 5, he begins chapter 8 by saying, Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is because of the obedience of one man who brought righteousness to all that now everyone who is in Christ Jesus, for them there is no condemnation. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the great news that Christians proclaim. And then in, in the rest of chapter 8, Paul goes back and, and, and tries to unpack what this means for us as believers. What does it mean for those who are in Christ Jesus? And he goes on to say that the struggle against sin is not yet over, but yet we do not have any more obligation to our sinful nature. Look at verse 9 in chapter 8. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And then move on to verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. Then look to verse 15. Paul says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you slaves again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. In other words, becoming sons and daughters of God does not mean the end of struggles and the end of suffering. Quite the opposite. Look at verse 8, 17. Paul says, now if we are children, namely children of God, then we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Now, in other words, to be children of God does not mean the end of suffering, nor the end of our struggles against sin. But it does mean that suffering and our struggle against sin is not the end. It doesn't mean that we will stop suffering or that we should stop fighting against sin, but it does mean that suffering and sin is not our end. That is the great message that Paul is unpacking here for us in chapter 8. And then his point in verse 28, the passage we just began reading, is clearly zooming in to understand this reality. Paul says, For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have be been called according to His purpose. Now the question is, what is the good that God works for those who He has called according to His purposes? What is the good to which he works everything else, else in our lives? Well, the answer is in verse 29. Now, let me pause. The answer is not what we think good is. The answer is verse 29. And here's what verse 29 says. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. This is the good to which God works out everything in our lives. The con to conform us, to make us in the likeness of the image of Christ. 
So why did Paul make this the aim of his ministry? Why did he pursue to make everything and to be able to present everyone perfect in Christ, mature in Christ? This text teaches us one major truth about spiritual maturity, about the aim of our spiritual maturity, and it is this. Our aim for spiritual maturity is based on God's predestination. That's why Paul aimed it, and that's why we should have the same aim. Now, when people think about predestination, we really have to do some, some unpacking of what that means. When people think about the word predestination, that usually they usually think only in reference to salvation, that God saves us. He predestines us. But notice what this verse says. God did not predestine us simply to be saved. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. In other words, God did not simply plan to save us from eternal hell. God had something far better for us. God had something far, in, far better than we can ever imagine, and that is He planned to make us like Christ. Now, this desire was clearly seen in creation. When God, the Father, spoke with other members of the Trinity, and He said to Himself, Let us make man in our image and likeness. Now, we know the rest of the story. The fall disrupted that plan, but it did not dissolve it. Because God prepared a way to redeem us, and He did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering so that he could redeem us. That's what Romans 8.3 tells us. In other words, God sent Christ by taking, his, by taking our likeness upon him so that we can be conformed to his likeness. God's plan from the beginning was that we should be, would be conformed to the image of Christ. So predestination has to do not simply with salvation, with getting saved. Predestination has to do with being conformed to the image of Christ. Now there are some Christians who say, well, I just want to be saved. I don't really care so much about discipleship and spiritual growth. I just want to be saved. I don't care about all those goodies and the rewards people get when they get to heaven if they're good Christians. I just want to be saved. Have you heard people like that? I have. People say, I don't care about the rewards. I just want to be saved. If you know people like that, if you hear people like that, thinking like that, may I gently and softly and clearly tell you that the biblical view of salvation is very foreign to that description. You cannot simply 
desire just to be saved. As if spiritual discipleship, as if spiritual growth is a, an extra activity, an extracurricular activity for good spiritual Christians. God conformed us and God predestined us not simply to be saved from, from hell, but he predestined us so that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. So what is the bottom line of Christianity? If you're here and like to know what is the bottom line of Christianity, it is not simply to be reunited with God. It is not simply to be saved. It is not simply to avoid going to hell. The bottom line of Christianity is that God predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. Predestination has to do not with our salvation so much as with our conformity to Christ. It includes our salvation, for sure, but it does not stop there. Now, by, by now, some of you might be quite curious and perhaps even uneasy about the notion of predestination. What do you mean God predestined us? Well, the word predestination is very easy. It literally and simply means predetermined. To determine ahead of time. Now, we do, those, we do this all the time. We make plans about something prior to, make, to making that event happen. We design blueprints of a building prior to building it. We like to know how things will be laid out prior to it happening. For instance, we have been planning for a few weeks and months now how our family fun night will take place. That is planning ahead of time. Predestination in many regards is simply that, determine ahead of time. Now, when it comes to God, what that means is that God made up his plans prior to the beginning of time. That's not hard to understand. What's hard to understand is the notion that God might have chosen some people and therefore they might, we might not have a choice or responsibility. Why, the reason why people are uneasy about the doctrine of predestination is because they think if we claim it, that means we have no freedom or no choice or no responsibility. I cannot address here fully the notion of predestination, but let me answer a few questions for you briefly, and hopefully they make sense. But first of all, let me talk about predestination and our choices. Paul is talking about predestination in this book, in the book of Romans, against the backdrop of the first three chapters which he unpacked for us in, in this book. In the first three chapters, Paul explicitly stated that we, sinful human beings, are so sinful that we on our own would never think to seek God. Romans 3.10, Paul quotes a passage from the Psalms, and he says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, 
Not even one. There's no one who understands. No one who seeks God. Did you hear that, the last words of that verse? There's no one who seeks God. In other words, we lack the choice to seek God, not because of predestination, but because of our sin. In other words, apart from God's act, none of us would seek Him. If you are here this morning and you think you can choose God on our own, on your own, you have too high a view of yourself. If you really think that it is in your power to choose God and to seek God, you really have a high view of yourself, higher than what the Bible describes for us. This means that left to our own abilities, we would never choose God. God has to intervene. God has to do something. But His intervention is not the kind of intervention that happens aside from our involvement and our engagement. And you say, how do I know that? Because the Scripture says so. Verse 30 says, those He predestined, He also called. God's predestination clearly engages us when He calls us. My friend, God initiates the relationship, not us. He's the one who calls us. And let me, let me pause here and speak to any of you this morning who might be here and you have never responded to God's call. If you have never responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, I want to extend to you this morning God's call. Listen to this great news that those who hear His invitation and respond by repentance and faith, for them there will be no condemnation because those who are in Christ Jesus, for them the law of spirit of life sets them free from the law of spi the spirit of sin and death. In other words, when we respond to God's call, when we become part of Christ, when call, Christ becomes part of us, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation because Christ sets us free from sin and death. Let me ask you this morning, if you're a, a hearer, if you're here and have not responded to God's call, let me encourage you, let me beg you to consider this news. Respond to Him. Those who respond to God's call, for them there is no condemnation. Make this day, today, the day when you do respond. When God engages you, when He calls you and you respond. And if you're here today and you would like to know more about what that means, what it means to be in Christ Jesus, what it means to follow Jesus, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service about what that looks for your life. But predestination means that God calls us, that God engages us. He has a message for us. He has an invitation for us. Predestina predestination does not mean no choice, 
or no responsibility. If anything, my dear friends, predestination means that we finally have the ability to respond to God. If you're here this morning and you are a non-believer or non-Christian and you hear this news and this morning it makes sense to you and you would like to know more about it, this is not because of your ability to understand. It is because, because God opens your eyes to his gospel. And if you're here today and it sounds strange what you're hearing and it doesn't make sense and you're thinking in your mind, gosh, why would anyone do this? Definitely I am not. What we pray for you is that God would open your mind, that God would open your eyes. Because in your power, in your ability, natural ability, you cannot choose God. Predestination means that we finally have the ability to respond to God. It does not mean that you have no choice. It does not mean that you have no responsibility. So first implication, God's predestination calls us to action. But you'll say, but what about the rest of verse 30 that we just read? Those God called, he justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Well, here Paul is describing what God will do in the future, and he describes it in language that is so certain that he talks about it as if it has already taken place. This is a word of assurance. This is a word of comfort. This is a word of encouragement. And remember, he says these things after he has talked for three chapters previously about how Christians ought not to live their lives under their sinful nature, but guided by the Spirit. This is a word of comfort to say that God will bring us to conformity to Christ. Why? Not because of our efforts. but because God designed so. So this is a word of encouragement. If you're here this morning and you feel like you are discouraged in your progress of maturity as a believer, if you feel like you have plateaued, let me encourage you this morning with these words, God will bring you to conformity to Christ. His plan for us does not stand merely on our efforts to do it. That is his plan, and he will make it to happen. But this idea, this comfort, does not encourage us to have a low view of spirituality. It does not encourage us to have a laxed attitude about our discipleship. If anything, it, is, it has a purpose of encouraging us and challenging us to persevere, to keep pursuing maturity because there is no lesser alternative for God. God's ultimate purpose with us is to conform us to the image of Christ. So what does the fact that God predestines us for maturity, what does this doctrine of predestination mean for us? It means that it should clarify for us our ultimate goal. It should call us to respond and it should encourage us to persevere. So, dear Christian, brother or sister, keep growing. Keep pursuing this unfailing goal which Christ has for us. 
That's why Paul said in Colossians 1.29, to this end I labor. God's predestination does not make our efforts superfluous. If anything, he calls us to engage in his goal for us. That's the notion of predestination. So the more we understand God's grace, the more we will grow in, in, in his calling for us. Because God's grace, God's calling, God's predestination calls us to be conformed to Jesus Christ. That's why we should pursue this goal. Personally and as a congregation. Now, let me remind you briefly. What does this maturity look like? What does this conformity to Christ look like? For the last 14 weeks uh, that we have preached these messages sporadically in different parts of the year, we have been looking at 14 marks of maturity. What does it mean for a Christian, for a believer, to grow in their process, in their maturing? And today I would like to review these 14 marks. If you're here this morning, somewhere in front of you, there should be a piece of paper that says a profile of a maturing believer. And I want to you to, to take it, find one. If you don't have, find one right in front of you, there should be one on the side. Someone should have, have one. Would you take it? Let's go through this together. And in many regards, in many ways, this is a review of what we have covered for the last 14 weeks. But how do we know if we grow in our likeness to Christ? What are some measurables? There are three key areas that we have identified based on the truths of God's Word. We grow in our maturity, in our, in our likeness to Christ when we grow in our communion with God, when we grow in our community with other believers, and when we grow in our commission to the world. Now, each of them are critical, and in many ways they are interrelated, but each of them have different marks, and I'd like for us to go through them one by one. Our communion with God, how do you know if you're growing in your communion with God? Here's the first mark. Having an ongoing desire to know God and His Word. Our soul's hunger and thirst for God is a sign of our soul's growth. Our longing for God is itself a sign of progress. Our soul thirsts for God not when it lacks God, but when it is satisfied with God. So let me ask you this morning, if you're a maturing Christian, here's the first way you can check yourself, examine yourself. Do you have an ongoing desire to know God and His Word? Is that in you? Number two, integrate biblical priorities and perspectives on life. Our maturing progresses as we let God transform our minds, our thinking, and our living. It is when we start loving what God loves and hating what God hates. It is when we take the cues for how we live our lives, not from the world around us, not even from the world in which we grew up in, but rather from God and His Word. A third sign, a third test that you can use for yourself is the test of practicing spiritual disciplines. Growing Christians are those who joyfully and, and willingly train themselves in godliness through such spiritual disciplines as praying regularly or reading the Word regularly or worshiping regularly 
or memorizing scripture, or fasting, serving, and other such disciplines. The point is that God uses, uses these mechanisms for our growth, for our conformity to Christ. A fourth test, a fourth examination is growing in obedience to Christ in order to reflect God's holiness. Now, we do not obey in order to find favor with God. We obey as a reflection that we have found favor with God while we were disobedient. So the more we understand God's grace, the more we grow in our obedience to Him. And the more we grow in, in such joyful obedience to Christ, the more we reflect God's holiness. A fifth sign, a fifth experiment, a fifth test is experiencing victory in spiritual warfare. A sign of our growth is that Christian life, as we begin living it, we will experience more conflict with sin than before. L let, me, let me repeat that. As we grow in our Christian lives, we will experience more conflict with sin, not less. When we were not saved, we didn't care about sin. When we are saved, when we become followers of Jesus, we, be, we get into more conflict with sin. So a sign that you are growing as a maturing believer is that you will experience victory in your spiritual warfare. Someone said, the closer you get to Christ, the more you will hate sin, for nothing is more unlike Christ than sin. So growing Christians become more alert to sin, and they take action against it. They fight against it. They fight against the devil's schemes. A sixth sign of our growth as maturing believers is experiencing the fruit of the Spirit. This is, we have put it as a final mark of our communion with God. It is when our character changes and starts reflecting the traits of God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, the fruit of the Spirit grows not in the garden, but it grows in the battlefield as we submit our lives and our nature to the Spirit of God. Now, these six marks are indicators of whether or not we are growing in our communion with God. And you could just use these six and say, how is my communion with God? Am I growing? But there's a second dimension, very important, and that is our community with other believers. Uh, to follow Jesus means to be a part of what Jesus founded, namely the church. To follow Jesus means to love what Jesus loved and what he died for, namely the church. To become a child of God means to be a part of the family of God, namely the church. Yes, we're saved personally, but what we're saved into is a community. So a second major dimension of our tests or the marks of our maturity have to do with our growth as part of a community of believers. What are the four marks of our community with other believers? Number one, faithful participation. Our most basic responsibility toward the Christian community is to participate to its gatherings, whether it's Sunday mornings or other things that are happening throughout the week, whether it's formal or informal. You cannot form community with other people 
if you don't know them, if you don't see them, if you don't interact with them. Most of the pictures in the New Testament envision a community where believers interact, have relationships, and real interactions. So faithful participation. Number two, edifying service. The major question in our life as a community is not how does this community help me, but how do I contribute to the growth of the body of Christ as it is manifested in this local church? How can God use my talents to edify His body? A third sign, a third test of our maturing in our community with other believers is accountability and transparency. To be in community with other believers means that we form deep relationships where, where we know each other, we know what's happening in each other's lives, and we can speak God's Word into each other's lives. That means that we're called to encourage each other, and we're called to confront each other lovingly so that we might grow in righteousness. What this means for us, dear brothers and sisters, and this is extremely painful for us to understand, hard, difficult, this means that we submit to each other, to the encouragement and the correction of each other so that others might encourage us and confront us in growth, in righteousness, and that we might do the same to them. We submit to the church because we together form one body of Christ. So Scripture assumes accountability and transparency. And finally, a, f a final mark of what it means to grow in our community with each other is graceful giving. We grow as followers of Christ when we understand how much God has given us and therefore become givers ourselves. We give of our material resources. We give regularly. We give proportionately. And most importantly, we give joyfully. Because that's graceful giving. That's community with other believers. Finally, a third major area of examinations, of questions, of, of markers have to do with our commission to the world. These simply, this simply means that to be a follower of Jesus means to be sent by Jesus. And we know that we grow in our commission to the world when we have a burden for the lost, when we proclaim the gospel regularly and faithfully, when we engage in, in intentional discipleship, when we teach others how to follow Jesus and how to make disciples themselves, and finally we grow in our commission to the world when we perceive and respond to needs in light of the gospel. That's how we understand conformity to Christ. That's how we understand as Park Hills Baptist Church what it means to grow in our likeness to Christ, what it means to grow in our maturing to Christ. And we as a church want to be about God's ultimate plan, God's bottom line with us as Christians and with us as His church. We do not want to settle for any less goal but predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Now let me say this for us. It, what this does not mean does not mean that we will see quick results and quick fixes. As a matter of fact, this kind of growth that God has predestined us to is not the kind of growth, it's not the kind of thing that you can put in a microwave 
and experience instantly. It is rather like the long-term process that happens, and it is those small things, those small steps, those small practices that lead us on that journey to maturity. It is like running a super marathon. A few weeks ago, some families of Park Hills did a, a pool party for families of Noah's Ark, and we invited a few families and tried to get to know them and, and get to know their kids and just try to bridge relationships with them. And one of the fathers said he was, a, when I asked him what he was, what he'd do, he said he was a runner in super marathons. What is a super marathon? And he said, well, you run races that are not 26 miles long, but 100 miles long. There's only three of those in all of Texas. This man would be running straight without stopping, not even to eat. He would eat as he runs. He would be running 100 miles straight. That's from here to San Antonio. And he said it would take him on a regular basis anywhere between 24 to 28 hours. So you can imagine, I was just like, wow. How do you do that? And as he was talking and he was describing and all that, I, I've asked the question, I said, are there, I said, are there a lot of young runners in, in, in this caliber, in this league of super marathon runners? And he said something that shocked me. He said, no. There are very few young people who can do this. Most of the runners in the super marathons are older people because it takes a long time to train your body to be able to do that. Running such distances, when you train your body to be able to do that, is not a quick fix. And in his practice, his daily practice and his daily schedule is so incredible, but all of that was built up through many years. My dear friends, the conformity to which Christ to which God predestined us, called us, is not a quick fix. It's not the kind of thing that you can just plug in a program, do this discipleship class, do the seminar, and bam, at the end of eight weeks, you're mature. That is not the kind of maturity that we want to seek as a church. What we want to say is we want to begin a path of challenging every one of us to start journey or that journey of maturity it'll be a long path we will not see immediate results but we want to make sure that everyone who comes as a part of our fold understands what that maturity is knows what that ultimate goal is and we equip them and we encourage them to be on that journey and if they're with us if you're with us just for a year or two and all we can do is encourage you in, in growing in those practices in these marks of maturity in, in some way and set you on this path of maturity, we hope and pray that God will honor that and will bring you to that maturity. But that's what we want to be as a church. That's our goal. If you're a Christian here, if you're visiting with us, if you're considering to join this church, let me tell you this is what we want to be about. We're not there. We have lots of things to do. But this is what we want to be about. So as I conclude this sermon, 
as, as we come to an end of the sermon series, let me remind you why we do this. Because God predestined us. And that's enough. Let us pray. Father, we stand humbly before you this morning asking for your mercy, asking for your grace to fall on us this morning. As a church, we want to recommit ourselves to pursue that which you have determined for us before the beginning of time. We want to love what you love and hate what you hate. We do not want to have a superficial view of discipleship and growth, but we want for our lives and for our church we would grow and we would be on this path of maturing. Father, we pray that your will be done in our lives as it is in heaven. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Would you please stand as we sing to our Lord and Savior? <clears throat> and it's a wonderful reminder that if you're at the beginning of this 100-mile supermarathon or every day of that 100-mile marathon, let us start with turning our eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow in the light of his glory. for worshiping with us. We invite you to come back in the next Sunday and things that are happening in our community throughout the week. And those of you who are visiting with us, we pray that God's blessing and protection would be in upon you in a special way. Let's bow our heads in prayer. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you.